Well, good morning. Again. Hey, that was pretty good. We're, we're with it this morning. I like that. Cool. It is my pleasure to be here this morning um, speaking from God's Word, and it is incredible to me that we are in week nine of our 10-week series entitled All In, Pursuing Christ Above All. Uh, it seems like we just got started with this, um, and I just want to thank you for your prayers over Tim's sabbatical as he, he's been gone. They have certainly been felt, and also thank you for your support and encouragement um, and all that you're doing um, to keep the functioning of this church going along smoothly. I've noticed that, hey, it is a lot less of a burden when the burdens spread out over a lot of different competent people, and that's, that's what I've taken away. I've taken away that our church is a healthy church, that um, people are willing to step up and fill in when uh, uh, even our lead pastor is absent. So um, thank, you. thank you so much for that. Um, last week, Chuck talked about the importance of taking off the old self and putting on the new. He said, we've already been saved, but we have the decision every morning whether we're going to put on the old self the old sinful nature, or whether we're going to put on the new, the new nature that we've been given by Christ. And he talked about, um, he showed an awesome video of how God is working to make us a new creation, to chisel away down to that original creation, that original design for our lives, for our identities, for who we are originally made to be. And that's going to be a little bit of a painful process, maybe. That, that might not always be easy for us to take but it's right and it's good because it's making us the people that we're designed to be. It's making us different. And it's making us uncommon in a world of common. So I want to ask you, has anyone ever called you different? Like for me in junior high or high school, that was the thing I wanted to avoid the most. I wanted to avoid being called different like the plague. I just wanted to fit in. I wanted people to accept me. I wanted to be part of the cool kids table at lunch. I, I would do whatever it took to fit in, to be common. But as I've grown up, it turns out that being common isn't such a good thing. It isn't always such a good thing. Sometimes we need to be uncommon. Think about an uncommon leader. Something that, some, a leader that's set apart or different, that's the difference between a good leader and a great leader. Think about the companies that are successful. The companies that are successful are the ones that are set apart. They have something that gives them an edge over the competition. Ask anybody that's running a business. They'll tell you, if, if you're not different, you're dead. There's got to be something that separates you from the rest of the group, from the crowd. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning because God works in this way too. God works in the same way. He uses our common places of work, school, and business. And he, he uses those common spaces to produce an uncommon result. God uses common relationships to produce uncommon 
results. So keep that in your mind as we're, as we're talking, as we're going through our scripture this morning. Okay, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. So if you want to flip there, it, it's actually going to be a large portion, portion of scripture this morning. We're going all the way to chapter 4, verse 6. Um, but we'll move through that, we'll move through that relatively quickly. God uses our normal, common, day-to-day relationships to produce uncommon results, and he uses those common spaces for a couple of different reasons. First of all, he uses those, I want to say, classrooms that he's designed and set up, work, home, school, whatever, wherever you spend most of your time. He's designed those classrooms to help us understand how to relate to each other and help us understand how to relate to him, to desire to be more and more like him. And secondly, he's using, he uses those, those common relationships to give a picture to the world of what it means to pursue Christ above all, what it means to live all in. So we're going we're gonna to be having that in the background as well as we get going. This is an exciting text this morning because we have finally moved from uh, the, the theoretical and the, the theology section of this letter. Paul has taken the first two chapters to essentially set the table, set the stage for this very practical, down-to-earth, day-to-day type teaching. And so we're going to get into the um, three uh, very specific relationships um, relationship between husband and ro- wife, relationship between parents and children, and rela- um, relationship between employer and employee. And as we do that, we're going to see that as Christians, we should be striving to be uncommon in every one of our common relationships. And as we go through this text, I hope that this structure helps to kind of uh, help you remember and clarify what Paul's talking about. He's asking us to picture uncommon, to practice uncommon, and to pray uncommon. So practice uncommon in all of our relationships. Picture uncommon in all of our relationships. And pray uncommon so that we have the ability to live out those relationships the way that they were intended to be lived out. So let's go to chapter 3, starting in verse 18, if you haven't already gone there. For this section, we're going to be jumping back and forth between Ephesians and Colossians. So if you want to also kind of maybe put your finger right there in, Colossians, uh, in Ephesians 5.22 to um, 6.9, just so uh, you can follow along. Um, we're going to be doing that because these are almost parallel sections, and actually Ephesians really helps us explain a little bit further, what Paul is saying in Colossians. So, same author, different letters, same kind of um, uh, thrust to the, to the passage. So I think we're going to be benefited by looking at those two uh, in parallel. We're not going to be able to get into every detail, but uh, I think it'll help. So, uh, we're going to be uh, looking at those three relationships, like I said, husband and wife, parent and child, and employer and employee. Now, if you'll notice, if you'll notice as we 
look at verse 22. Paul starts with the word slaves. Now, I've gone ahead and made the jump to employer-employee rather than slave-master relationship. Okay, I will talk a little bit more about that later because the word slave can have some hang-ups for us and we need to have some clarity on that. But just for the sake of our message this morning, and I think for um, the ability to kind of relate to it in our own spheres of existence, we're going to be looking at it as employer-employee relationship. So as we start out, it's important to, note it, to notice that Paul is always, as he's, as he's giving us a code of conduct for living in uh, these different relationships, he's always going to be pointing to our earthly home. So as he talks about, hey, this is how we're supposed to be interacting with each other in ho- at home, he's always going to be having an, a mindset, a vision for our heavenly home. And bringing that down to earth and giving, giving a taste of that for everyone that's looking. So with that, we'll start with wives. Let's, let's, look, at, um, let's look at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Let's go to 19 too. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. All right, now the word Submit. There's another tricky word. That's kind of a nasty word in our, our culture. We don't really like the sound of that. Um, that's, a little bit, that's a little bit of a hard word for us to swallow sometimes. But if we understand what Paul is talking about, if we understand the context and the heart behind his message, I think um, it'll make more sense and it'll be a little bit easier uh, to take. These passages cannot be taken um, to, as a means to justify any kind of abuse, verbal, physical, from, from the husband going to the wife, none of that is, none of that is present here. Um, it, even, even down to um, poor treatment of wives is not even part of this picture. Paul does not have that on his mind. When he says the word submit, he's talking about something altogether different. So, Let's look at Ephesians 22 through uh, 24, if you've, got, if you've got that mark there. Starting with verse 22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Okay, so this submission, we're talking about submission to the Lord primarily, and then secondarily, submission to the husband. Both of these submissions are willing acts. This is, this, is not the, um, this is not the forced type of slave-master relationship. All of these are willingly done by, uh, by the wife as an act of understanding and support and honoring and loving that goes both ways. It's a mutual love. None of this is forcefully imposed. And if we think about it this way, Christ was not forced to go to the cross. He willingly went to the cross to save us. He did not have to do that. That was his choice. But in doing that, he was submissive to the Father. So when we have that picture in mind, 
And we understand that that's what Paul is getting after when he uses the word submit. It becomes very clear that this is not talking about some kind of equality structure. This is not talking about some kind of inferiority, but this is talking about roles. Roles of the wife and roles of the husband. So that's extremely important. And I think if husbands were holding up their end of the bargain, I think this would be the natural response from wives. I think it would just come naturally that they would submit to um, the husband's leadership. If husbands were living so uncommon, so all in, and loving just as Christ loves the church, I don't think the idea of submission would be hard to swallow. And this is what Paul means when he instructs husbands to love. Husbands love and do not be harsh with them. It means husbands, we've got to step up and we've got to lead. Really lead. Not just because we have that title, not just because we've been established that way, but because that's the way the Lord designed it, but because we need to be leaders in this, in this relationship. We need to be uncommon. We need to be uh, picturing the Lord in this relationship. So what does that mean? It means that we're going to man, man up and lead. Instead of acting like boys, we're going to act like men and lead. This means we're going to lead sacrificially, spiritually, and it also means that we're going to, meet, we're going to lead romantically. That's part of the picture. Leading takes creativity. Leading takes intentional effort and a clear mission. What could be more clear than to lead? But what does it mean to lead sacrificially? It could mean taking a bullet for your wife. Yes. But it could go all the way down to letting your wife choose the movie you watch tonight. It means that we're willing to put our own agendas aside to meet the specific and deep needs of our wives. What does it mean to lead spiritually? Look at Ephesians. Go back to Ephesians. Look at um, verse 29. Look at what Paul says here. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. So we're to feed and care for our wives, not just with physical food, but with spiritual food, with the word of truth, in love. And we've also got to lead romantically. Men, are you still pursuing your wives? Are you still going on dates? Think back to when you were dating or engaged. Think back to those times when you came home and said, hey, I got you this just because I was thinking about you, with no ulterior motive. Not trying to get anything back, not trying to um, apologize for something, not trying to um, earn uh, what, what my neighbor used to call a kitchen pass. I know that's crass, but um, that permission to go do something that you wanted to do. Are we going to step up to the challenge and do this for our wives? Are we going to love, serve, and lead in the way that Jesus does? This love is a full-orbed love. 
an all-out care for their wife, our wives, that puts their welfare and godliness above almost everything else in life. And think about this. Even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. We're called to do the same thing. So we've looked at the um, husband-wife relationship. Let's look at children and parents. Um, going, back to, going back to Colossians now, we're in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. So Paul uses the word fathers, but what's pictured here is parents. Because this is, a, this is a combined, this is a team effort to raise our children. If you're a parent, you know that children are one of the best defenses against arrogance and pride. If you thought you were an awesome and even-killed person before kids, you probably don't hold on to that with as much confidence now. I know that's the case for me. And listen to, listen to these real statements made by children that illustrate just how hard it can be to be a parent. Even when you're doing the right thing, this is what you could receive back from your children. You're ruining my life. You're the worst mother I have ever known or seen. God messed up big time when he let you be a parent. You get a kick out of trying to control me, don't you? When you get old, I'm putting you in a nursing home a lousy one, and I'll never visit you except to make sure that they are neglecting you. I'm counting down the days until I turn 18. I used to count the years, and now I'm counting down the days. The only time I don't hate you is when you're asleep. You will regret this for the rest of your life. I will make sure of that. Some people get embarrassed by their parents. I live in a constant state of humiliation. Okay, just to be clear, that is not, those are not quotes from my kids. That's, that's from a number of different places, okay? So um, it's just all very localized right here in that, that illustration. But that's what, we're, that's what we're dealing with as parents. But even as our children get under our skin, even as they make those kind of comments, uh, we've got to try and pull back from those potentially nuclear, nuclear moments, and remember that our children are a gift from the Lord. They're eternal souls. Eternal souls entrusted to us temporarily. Yes, our children would benefit from the teaching to obey. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. But the onus and the burden falls on parents. It falls on us as parents to be the adults in the equation and lead like it. And Paul knows the potential to embitter or crush our kids. He knows that potential is so strong that it's important for him to include in this letter to the, Colo- into the, this letter to the Colossians. He's essentially saying, hey, don't set up your kids to fail. where nothing is good enough, where they find themselves constantly in no-win situation, where they're not smart enough, they're not good enough, they never quite meet your expectations. 
I once heard a story of a gifted seminary student who had all the promise in the world. In fact, everyone, professors, friends, classmates, everyone was telling him he had what it took to be great, to be successful in the ministry. But he was on the brink of throwing in the towel. And when he was asked, hey, why, why are you giving up? Why are you abandoning this track? He told about his dad. He said, you know what? I've never been good enough for my dad. I've never been able to meet up to his expectations. When I came home with a 98 on an exam, he said, hey, where are the other two points? His favorite word for me was dummy. Can you imagine being called a dummy by the most important person in the world, by the most important voice speaking into your life? See, this student, although he had everything going his way, although he had everything it took to do the job well, he decided not to listen to any of those other voices. He listened to his dad. He listened to that voice. We have a huge responsibility as parents. We have a huge responsibility as parents. And that's what Paul's getting at here. So what's the, what's the positive side of this negative command to not embitter, not discourage, to not crush our kids? We've got to be consistent with our discipline and training. We've got to, be, we've got to explain the reason why we're training them up. Where negative explanations are balanced with positive ones. Hey, you did this wrong. What are you going to do right the next time? How are you going to handle this differently the next time? See, there's a difference between pushing and pulling. When we, when we push our kids, we crush our kids and we discourage them. But when we lead and we lead out in front and we lead to pull them along, to be more and more like the people they're supposed to be. We pull them along and lead them to be their full potential. That's what Paul's talking about. We have a huge responsibility. And it's a huge privilege to lead in that way. So, so far we've seen what uncommon looks like between husbands and wives, parents and children. Let's move into another realm of life that we spend far more hours than we really want to think about or are willing to admit. I'm talking about the workplace and the relationship between employers and employees. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. We're in verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. 
and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. A quick note about slavery. This is the context that Paul's writing into. This is, this is the world that uh, was around him. Slavery was um, a part of life. And while Paul did not condone or agree with slavery, but there was no mechanism for him to break down slavery. And it wasn't even his primary concern. Paul's primary concern was not to break the bonds of physical slavery, but to break the bonds of spiritual slavery. And he did have a mechanism for doing that. It's the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what he made his entire life about. Breaking the chains, those spiritual bonds of sin, and preaching the good news, preaching the good word. So I don't think we can look at this passage and say, oh yeah, Paul's definitely condoning slavery. I think it's exactly the opposite. And if you want further uh, reading on that, you can look at the book, um, uh, the letter to Philemon that Paul wrote, where he talks to, um, where he talks to Philemon and just begs that he let uh, receive back a former slave, Onesimus, as a brother. Not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. Um, that is a great book. It's a short one. Read it and see if you can see those, those very clear um, moments where Paul is saying, hey, slavery is not the way to go, but um, uh, definitely, definitely accepting everyone as equal in the eyes of the Lord. So we'll go into this relationship between employer and employee. It's a, it's a provisional relationship. In the end, everyone's going to be held accountable to the same sta- standard, no matter what standards have been established by your place of business or by you. The standard is Jesus Christ. This is what we love about Jesus, but it also is what makes his teaching difficult. Jesus is always pushing the envelope, and he's, always, and he's doing it here too. He's saying, don't just do your work to get it done, punching in and out. Don't just do your work to please people. Don't just do your work to get a paycheck. Do your work fully and completely, wholeheartedly, as if you were employed by God. Do your work to please God. Delighting God. That's a completely different way to view work. And enter into those relationships in the same way. With that joy of serving, no matter what it is. Do your work to a Father in heaven. So in all three of those relationships, we've been challenged, we've been challenged to practice uncommon. And I think if we go back through those, we're going to see that if we do that, we're going to picture uncommon all in living. We as a church, we as our individual, um, individual families have a responsibility to picture this relationship between God and us in our relationships between the people that we interact with every day. If we do this, if we live uncommon, if we live all in, we're going to give a picture potentially for the unconverted spouse. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, it says, so that if any of them do not believe, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. 
The very, the very behavior of the wife in this example could have the potential for changing the heart of an unconverted husband and lead them to the Lord and lead them to eternal life. Just think about the significance of that. What about for parents? Have you ever considered that as parents, we're acting as a surrogate God for our children? That their understanding of who God the Father is, is coming pretty much 100% from what they're seeing in us, from how they're seeing us conduct our lives, from how they're seeing us speak and interact with each other. And it's a picture for the unconverted world, as I've already said. The world that's just doing what's common, what everybody else is doing. If we decide to go all in, if we decide to be uncommon, we are going to stand out. We should stand out. We should give the world a picture of something different. We'll give, a, give the world a picture of grace. If you didn't know this when you got married, your spouse is not perfect. If you didn't know this when your children were born, they are not perfect. If you didn't know this when you accepted that that job or started that company, your employer or employees are not perfect. If you didn't realize this when you came in here to church this morning, your pastor is not perfect. Tim, I mean. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm not perfect either, but look... You're not perfect either. We all need grace. That's a fact of life. We need it desperately, and we're looking for it. The world is starved for grace. And we have the opportunity to picture that for them and to draw them in with that sweet aroma. So we've got to practice We've got a picture, and thirdly, we've got to pray uncommon. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 2 to 6 now. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is where the battle for work and home and school takes place, in prayer. We've got to be wide awake about it, watchful and thankful. Prayer is how we keep the attitude of thankfulness and peace, even as our world seems to be crumbling around us, or as our relationships are strained, because they're going to be. Imperfect people dealing with imperfect people is going to mean tension. How do we deal with that? Prayer is the way to open doors for the gospel, too. Prayer is the way we learn to live uncommon, what Paul calls wise, where we learn to redeem our time, living intentionally and purposefully, rather than simply spending time carelessly and excessively. The best use of our time is to walk bravely into our common relationships covered by uncommon prayer. 
So, husbands, our lack of good, good conduct, or our lack of walking brave, cannot be excused away by time. Oh, I just didn't have time. I just didn't have time to care for my wife. Okay, we do plenty of things. We care for our own bodies. Look, it says, uh, uh, it's either in Colossians or Ephesians, um, Paul says, nobody hates their own body, but they care for it. They spend time on it. Okay, guys, we spend time on our look. We spend time on our fitness. Um, we spend time on the clothes we wear, the accessories, all that stuff. Okay, I got to tell an embarrassing story. One time when I was in high school, very much still a boy in maturity, I walked into our house and there in our front entryway was a big mirror. Okay, I walked in, I stopped, dang, I'm looking good. Okay, and I said it loud enough so that my mom in the other room could hear. And to this day, she never lets me forget it. And actually, she brings it up in conversation whenever she can, just to embarrass me. That's, I think, one of her uh, primary goals in life, actually. But look, that's, that's the attitude of a boy. Totally consumed with self, totally consumed with appearance, outward appearance. When we grow up, when we mature, when we, when we are acting like men, we're going to be about other people. And for certain, we've got to be around about the most important people in our lives, our wives and our children. So are we going to step up and live all in and uncommon. Because when you think about it, children, they're going to imitate the way they see their parents interacting. They're going to look at us, they're going to look at the way we're interacting and talking, and they're going to say, oh, that's, that's the way a relationship is supposed to go, for better or for worse. So can we... Can we practice uncommon all in living at home? Can we practice uncommon all in living at work? Employees and employers. The workplace is one of the premier classrooms where God teaches us how to interact with people, how to solve differences, how to, how to come to uh, restored relationships, and how to understand what he wants from us to be more and more like him. Can we picture the uncommon all in life for the world to see? If we do this, we get a reward in heaven, eternal life in Jesus Christ. The world gets a taste of the common all in life, and God gets maximum glory. He inherits us as little praise producers. And when you get a bunch of little praise producers together, you get maximum glory. And can we pray the uncommon all in life? The life of devotion and prayer is about winning hearts, not winning arguments. It's about being persuasive, not abrasive. It's about drawing people in. Again, can we pray uncommon all in? 
It means we've got to pray constantly and continually. So, we can either be circulating health or we can be compounding hardness. In the places we live and work and the people we interact with, to be moving towards health when the world is constantly slipping toward hardness is going to be difficult. We're going to have to be committed to Christ above all in order to do this, in order to love, submit, obey, encourage, serve, work, and do this all for our Lord, our true master in heaven. We're going to have to do this in order to keep striving to practice uncommon, picture uncommon, and pray uncommon. This is how we're going to live the all-in life. To practice uncommon, picture uncommon, pray uncommon, and live all-in. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the simple truth it speaks. Lord, thank you for setting the standard. Thank you for coming and walking this earth and giving us a picture of what it means to be in relationship with others, to be in uncommon relationships with others, that give, give a picture to the world that they're not used to seeing. I pray that you would encourage us and compel us and that we would lean on the power of your Holy Spirit to walk in the way that you've called us to, to walk wise, to walk uncommon, to walk all in. Lord, thank you for the responsibility. Thank you for, for the privilege to try and go out this week and live uncommon in all those very common relationships. Lord, produce something that you can be proud of chisel away at anything that needs to be gone and get us down to that original creation, that original design for our lives. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Lord, thank you most of all for your submission to the will of the Father to willingly go to the cross to show us that ultimate picture of sacrificial love. We love you, Lord, and thank you, and pray that you would go out with us uh, this week in the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.